Welcome to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden, primary care physician and acute care hospitalist at Hennepin Healthcare in downtown Minneapolis, where we cover the latest in health, healthcare, and what matters to you. And now here's your host, Dr. David Hilden. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 15 of the Healthy Matters Podcast. I'm Dr. David Hilden, your host, and this is an episode of Hilden's House Calls, in which I'll answer whatever is on your mind about health and healthcare. So let's dive right in. John? All right, okay. So we're going to start off with a bang here. Kate from Wilmer was wondering, I have a husband of 25 years who snores. A lot. Where can I trade him in? Okay, I guess we're into the marital counseling section of the show right off the bat. Right off the bat. Okay, everybody, or maybe not everybody, but a lot of people can relate to a bed partner who is shaking the house with the snoring. And the good news is that there's some treatments you can do about snoring, but the bad news is sometimes it's hard to get the person to believe you or to do anything about it. So snoring is caused by a number of things. The basics are that your airway, where air goes in through your nose and mouth and into your lungs, is partially blocked. And it's usually an anatomical problem, most commonly in things like sleep apnea. In fact, most people, not all, but most people with sleep apnea snore. There are some who do not, but it's one of the hallmark symptoms of that. But snoring doesn't just mean you have sleep apnea. It could be that you have a cold. You have inflammation of your airways. Perhaps you've been drinking a little bit. It's well known that alcohol can lead to to more snoring. No way. Yeah, it does. You know, sadly, sadly, uh, if you've had a couple beforehand and you're, you know, that can do it. So it can be it can be due to a lot of different causes. And the thing to do is to find out the cause and see if it's a treatable one. Many of them are. If somebody has been snoring repeatedly for year after year, I do recommend getting a sleep study. The medical term is a PSG, a polysomnography study, but it's well known as a sleep study. Go to a sleep center like the one we hear at at Hennepin Healthcare, and they will do a study to see if you have sleep apnea. What they do is they measure the oxygen levels in your blood as you're sleeping. And if it drops 10, 20, 50 times an hour, you have sleep apnea. That is treatable. It's treatable with with devices. Your dentist might have some ideas. It's treatable mostly with CPAP machines. And for those of you who said, I've tried the CPAP, I hate it. I hate that mask. No, there are new ones. There are nasal ones that don't even go over your mouth. There's lots of different options. So sleep apnea is one of them. If your sleep study is normal, um, you might look at other things. Look at things like allergies. Perhaps all you need is a, is an antihistamine before bed. Consider cutting back on alcohol before you sleep. All those things uh, can lead to snoring. Some people try those strips on their nose. I don't have any inside knowledge of whether those are helpful, um, at least from a scientific standpoint, but people have anecdotally told me that those things work. So you might try that. You might try raising the head of your bed. That might help the anatomy a little bit to get air in and out a little bit better. And if all else fails, um, I don't recommend the pillow over your bed partner's head. That probably is not a, a safe, <laughs> safe thing. But, but if all else fails, there are um, earplugs. How's that for a technical answer on earplugs? Hey, hey, but you, you know, know what? It might it might uh, save your marriage. Whatever works, right? Yeah, okay. Well, at least skip the nightcap. Gotcha. All right. So Seth from Green Bay wrote... Is there anything that can be done medicinally or nutritionally to prevent hair loss? 
What do you think? Hair loss is so common, um, but there are some of them that are reversible or treatable, and some of them is sort of a steady progression that's a little bit tougher. The first thing to do is if that you have patchy hair loss, like coming out in blobs in weird places, anywhere on your body, usually your scalp, but wherever, wherever you have hair on your body that's coming out in patches, that might be an autoimmune type of hair loss called alopecia areata. Alopecia is simply the medical term for hair loss. Areata means patchy. And that is one that has a treatment with usually um, uh, anti-inflammatory steroids and like it might get better. But that is not the majority. The majority of hair loss is simply age-related and happens to both men and women, although it's more common and prominent in men. But women easily lose hair, hair as well as they age. There's a few things you can do. One, if it's really bad, you can uh, live with it. You can go bald. You can get uh, wigs and the like. Uh, uh, I'm not kidding about that. A lot of people say it's just the best plan for them is just to accept it. Mm-hmm. Other ways you can do, though, there are some treatments. There are medications you can do that are mildly effective in some people. Make sure you get a, do that under a physician's care because some of them have side effects. They are hormonal agents, and those hormones can have side effects in your body. So be careful of those. There's also a low-level laser treatment that people have Hmm. tried. I have seen some people get some relief with that. Now, if you're mostly bald, a little laser isn't going to do the trick. But if you're losing just a little bit here and there, it might uh, have, if that's FDA approved, um, as far as I know. And then there are hair transplants. That's really funny, but they they transplant hair follicles, you know, to the places where your hair is lost. Because your if, own, right? Your own hair. Yeah, they transplant your own hair. Although maybe that's how you could become a redhead, John. Yeah, I was curious. Yeah, was you curious. know, maybe um, <laughs> maybe that's what you do. I've always wanted to be a redhead. I don't want the yeah. hair coloring, so maybe I'll get a transplant. No, it's your own hair, and they literally move a hair follicle from one place to the other. Once your hair follicles are dead, nothing's going to grow there, and so they they literally move a healthy follicle from one place to the other. Hmm. But they have to do it. In, in like millimeters apart and it's a long and lengthy process. And that's effective though, huh? It's effective in some people. It adds a little bit. Again, if you are mostly going bald, you know, especially that male pattern hair loss where your hair loss is receding, none of these are going to be that effective. That's why I started this off with maybe consider some other things. A, Live with being bald. Get a hat. Oh, yeah. Get a hat. Okay. Um, you know, you might look pretty good, or you might choose to get a, a artificial situations like a, like a wig or something. I wasn't kidding about that. That is often a good treatment. But if you have mild hair loss, the transplants, the laser things, the medications, they might help just to fill it out a little bit. Good to know. Good to know. Cool. So moving on, we've got another question here from Harry from Iowa City, and he's wondering about limbs that fall asleep. In particular, like he says, what does it mean when your legs fall asleep? What's actually happening in your body. That's called a paresthesia. And some people think it's your blood supply. It's not. It's not really your loss of Hmm. blood supply. It's almost always a nerve problem. You're pinching the nerve. There are people who live with paresthesias or neuropathies their whole life can relate to that. Um, But in those folks, it's more of a permanent or a progressive thing people who have peripheral neuropathy from diabetes or something. But for those of us whose leg just falls asleep when we're sitting on it, funny, it's a temporary thing. And you might have that pins and needles sensation. You might have, it might feel burning. It might feel just numb. It feels numb and then it kind of tingles when it, quote, wakes up. You are literally just interrupting the, the nerve communications from, from your brain to your legs or your arm, if it happens to be your arm, because you pinched the nerve. Okay. It's a temporary thing. It gets better. Your nerve wakes up again. 
I don't know whoever came up with the it's falling asleep thing because nothing's asleep. You're literally just pinching a nerve. Okay. okay. But it's not, it's not dangerous uh, uh, as long as you can move and shake it out again and it goes away. When it, when it is a problem is if you're living with a numb or pins and tingling, uh, pins and needles tingling sensation permanently, you need to have that checked out. Okay. All right, but the the 30 seconds or so, maybe. Uh, You're okay with that. Gotcha. Excellent. Okay, and Arthur from Ann Arbor, Michigan says, I have a twitching eyelid that's driving me nuts. What causes this, and is there anything I can do to make this stop? It's funny that people ask me a lot about their twitching eyelids, and I never have a good answer, so I'll give it my best on this one. Okay. But it's a difficult one because there are microscopic nerves that go to your eyelids, and then there's very small blood vessels that go there. So anytime those things get irritated, they twitch. The vast majority of them are not dangerous. It can be you're sleep deprived, or you could have a little uh, viral inflammation of your eyelid, or you could have um, bright lights or a corneal um, inflammation, something with your eye that's just irritating it, but it's temporary. Okay, And and so the, the nerves just get irritated and they, they twitch a little bit. So it looks really funny because your eyes doing that, you feel, you feel weird about it. But the vast majority of those are just a temporary situation like I've just described. If it doesn't get better, if that goes on for days and days and days, you could have some underlying vascular or neurologic problem. There are all kinds of neuromuscular problems, Parkinson's disease or myasthenia gravis. These are neurologic chronic diseases. That's not what most people have with eye twitching. But if it doesn't get better after a few days or certainly for a few weeks, if your eye's twitching for for a few weeks, go see somebody uh, with neurology expertise. Gotcha. Any connection there, do you think, uh, with allergies by chance? Yeah, that's a good point, John. It's possible that it's your allergies. In fact, that, that might be one of the more common causes. Anything that irritates your eye. Your eye is, it's a finely tuned, small part of your body with many muscles. There's six muscles that control your eyeball, each eyeball. There are little teeny muscles that control your eyelid. There's literally little muscles that do that. And there's teeny little nerves. So think of a very fine motor thing, not like the big muscles of your arms or legs. Anything that irritates those. So allergens in the air would be one cause that that's just uh, your eyes get itchy. They get dry and they start to get irritated by that. And it's it's just, um, it's irritating the nerves in those small muscles. And so that's a, that's actually a good one. Allergies are something to consider. Okay, great. We've got one more here. Hi, Dr. Hilden. This is Paula from Egan. I'm calling today because my teenage sons have an excess of fluid in their ear or some kind of gunk that's yellowy when they do clean out their ears. I know you're not supposed to use Q-tips, but can you help us teach them the better way to clean their ears so that you don't see the growth um, after effects of sweat and just all that ear gunk? Thank you. No show is complete without a without a ta- without talking about ear gunk. And this is a great question. And I like your explanation of it, Paula. It's a great question. What do you do about the gunk coming out of your ears? Well, the first thing is that it's probably earwax. That's what the gunk probably is. Earwax is kind of a yellowish, reddish, brownish, viscous, waxy stuff that's in your ears. Yep. Earwax earwax is normal. It is normal. Some people make more than others, but it is normal. And so my number one thing is don't do anything about it. That's my number one bit of advice. Don't do anything to try to clean it out. You, It is normal. Now, for most people, they don't even know you have it in there. 
it kind of comes out when you don't notice it. It's a small amount. And so that's easy advice to take. Don't do anything. But I get it. Some people have a lot. So if you have tons of stuff coming out of your ear, A, make sure you don't have an infection. B, make sure you don't have allergies. Those things could be treated. Allergies could be treated. And then maybe the gunk isn't so it's such a big deal anymore. Uh, that, that's the first thing I would suggest for your kids. You know, have an ear, nose, throat person take a look in there. I look in ears all the time. I can see earwax constantly. And I just let it go. I just let it go. But if it is problematic, there's just a lot of it, it can lead to to hearing loss and the like. And so I do suggest just using the -the over-the-counter drops. goes under the brand name Debrox, I think. Uh, Although I I, I try to stay away from using brand names, but I think that that's what that one's called. Put a few drops in that ear, put that ear facing the ceiling so it gets worked around in there, and then just dab the outer part of the ear with a tissue. That is the way you clean just the part that's getting to the outside part. Never put a Q-tip in your ear. As many parents know and many pediatricians know and a lot of doctors know, the old saying is true. Never put anything smaller than your elbow in your ear. That is the truth. So um, if you don't want to buy over-the-counter drops, you can try mineral oil. Um, you can just buy garden variety mineral oil. It's a it's a non-toxic kind of oil and just put a couple drops in there. It loosens up the wax and then you just dab, dab with a tissue what comes out. But for those of you who are not having hearing loss and you don't have a lot of gunk coming out of your ear, I would just forget about it. Don't do anything about your earwax and go about your business. Just live with it. Just okay. live with it. You probably got some in there or maybe you don't, but ignorance is bliss. Okay. If you don't All know right. what's there. I'll take that to the bank. Hey, these are some really good questions. Thanks for sending them in, listeners. And we will get to more of them right after we take this short break. You're listening to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden. Have a question or a comment for the doctor? Become a part of our show by reaching out to us at healthymatters at hcmed.org. Or give us a call at 612-873-TALK. That's 612-873-8255. And now let's get back to more healthy conversation. And we're back taking your questions on Hilden's House Calls. John, what else you got? Okay, so this one comes in from Kathy. She says she's a longtime Healthy Matters listener, struggles with tinnitus. She feels dizzy all of the time, has lost her hearing in one ear already, and has constant headaches. She asks, is there any new treatment for tinnitus or any of these related symptoms? What's the latest? So many people have tinnitus, or some people like to say tinnitus, but I say tinnitus. Tinnitus is any weird sound in your ear that uh, where your nerves are simply playing tricks in you. Some people call it a buzzing. Some people call it a ringing. I've heard it described as a foghorn. I've heard it described as a pulsating kind of thing. So people describe it in any in a variety of ways. However you describe it, if it's a continuous sound in one or both of your ears that doesn't seem to go away, that's tinnitus. The causes are many. Sometimes it's it's uh, medications. In fact, aspirin in huge doses can cause tinnitus, just as one example. So if you're on medications, you might ask your doctor, is that a problem? It can be an exposure to loud noises, and it doesn't even have to be an extensive exposure. It can be uh, military veterans or people who okay. um, shoot firearms. Uh, if you don't wear ear protection, it can simply be that firearm, and that's often on one ear or the other because the fire when you shoot off one side. So um, I've heard that endlessly from military veterans, particularly those who – 
of an earlier generation or an older generation who they didn't wear a heck of a lot of ear protection. It can be from too much uh, ACDC or yeah, uh, rock bands. Or rock bands. Uh, you know, I like I like Bruce Springsteen, and they're loud. And so, you know, uh, you know, everybody goes home from those concerts that evening with some tinnitus. Almost everybody. It is not good. I mean, let me be honest. It's not good. To, it is damage to your ear. But for many people, that that goes away. But it doesn't for everybody. So if you have ringing or buzzing or anything in your ear, particularly noticeable when you're, say, resting or going to bed, that's when you hear it the most because you don't have anything to distract you. That's something to have evaluated. The first step is to do just that. Have it evaluated by an audiologist. We have a great program here at Hennepin Healthcare. And wherever you're listening, I'm sure your doctor can recommend one as well. You should see if it's in just one ear or the other. That's the first thing. You know, if it's in just one ear, it could be a vascular problem, particularly if it's of a pulsating nature. If you feel like a pulsing, pulsing, pulsing in just one ear, that could well be a vascular thing which needs looking at. If it's in both ears, it's probably more of a neurologic problem. So they test your hearing, they make an evaluation, and then they look for medications you can stop or behaviors you can change to make it better. But beyond that, the treatments are actually a little bit slim, to be honest. There are some people who get relief with cognitive behavioral therapy. That's a, it's a commitment. You have to commit to talking to learning cognitive behavioral therapy. Other things are noise-canceling headphones. That sounds really weird, but yeah. if it's really bugging you, noise-canceling headphones work for many people. The the problem is they're not cheap and you have to wear them all the time, you know, yeah. like when they got a battery and <laughs> Exactly. Unfortunately, there isn't a really good quick fix. There's nothing you can do. Some people do live with it kind of their whole life. Um, but so get it evaluated, find out the cause. If you can't find out the cause, those are some suggestions to maybe make it at least a little bit less uh, bothersome to you. Okay. So bring earplugs to concerts. Bring, you know, you should do that. You really should. Um, you know, I did it for a while there, but I think that- no, I that, do it that, all the time. Do you? Oh, yeah. Do you really? It's my franchise. It's my job. I suppose so, because you are in audio. Yeah, I, I don't think every, you know, I did it a little bit. But, yet, you know, you have to be confident in yourself. You know, you know, I, I didn't see too many people at the last Springsteen concert. No, no, no. It's it's definitely a nerd look. but uh, It is but, a nerd look, but it's probably the right thing to do. I also like Beethoven. I don't think you have to wear uh, earplugs at the at the Beethoven concert. But if, you, if you're in an arena concert at a heavy metal band or something. First Avenue. Oh, my gosh. So for those of you listening, First Avenue is a famous club in downtown Minneapolis. I've been to some loud shows at First Avenue. It is. Yeah, it's a ruckus. It's great. Um. <laughs> I used to go during the Prince era. You know, uh, Prince was about five years older than me, and I remember he was playing down there, and I never saw him there, but that's where he used to play. But good uh, good tips when you're in loud concerts is, frankly, you should be wearing earplugs. Worth their weight in gold, which isn't a lot. Um, <laughs> right. But, okay. Uh, on to our next one. This one comes in from Beth in Farmington. She says, I don't actually own a gun, but I have a trigger finger, or a trigger thumb, actually. That's been clicking and bothering me for some months now. What can I do about it? Yeah, trigger fingers can be, first of all, in any finger. It can be in your thumb as well. It is a medical problem. It's got a medical name. It's called tenosynovitis. Frankly, it's called sclerosing tenosynovitis. So your your fingers are, the tendons of your fingers that, that allow them to bend and extend and, and that kind of thing, they operate in a little sheath. They're inside a little sheath that, that smooths out the friction. That can get inflamed sclerosis is sort of um, scarred and the tendon inside of it can't move freely. And so it, it happens mostly in people who use their hands repetitively or in gripping motions. If you have to grip things, tools, 
you know, contractors. People who are on keyboards a lot can get it. It's more common in people with diabetes, although that you certainly don't have to have diabetes to get it. It is, for some reason, unknown to me, a little bit more common in women. So what it is is that you can't bend and extend your finger normally. It hurts or it pops or it clicks when you're trying to extend and and flex your finger. And sometimes it gets stuck, usually in the bent position. And then it really can be a problem. It can be you can't use the finger very well. So treatments. Um, uh, You go to an orthopedist who specializes in hands, or you go to an occupational therapist who specializes in hands, and they will do motions and range of motion exercises. Sometimes they'll want to immobilize it for a little while, but they all don't do that. But sometimes they'll they'll put a little splint on it. You can get it injected with steroids. A steroid's just a a garden variety anti-inflammatory. Sometimes that helps. And in some cases, particularly if it's getting bent and you can't straighten it, surgery is in order. But but I do emphasize, go to a surgeon who specializes in hands. Uh, your hands are delicate. Um, like I was talking earlier about the eyes, a delicate, small little structure, so are your hands. You don't want someone whose main practice is knee surgeries and then have them messing around with right. your thumb. You go to a hand specialist. So I know a couple, Jackie Geisler here and Tom Barreca here at Hennepin. These are two outstanding people whose careers are on hand surgery. I always make sure you go to somebody who specializes in hands. You don't want someone who's used to using the big power tools, messing with a tendon that's the size of a piece of spaghetti. So right. you, you, you uh, uh, make sure you go to a hand specialist. You got it. And what was the name of that again? It's called sclerosing tenosynovitis. Oof. Heck of a Scrabble word. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Oh, excellent. Okay. And so moving on, we got this one from Marla and Rosemont. She wrote, hello, Dr. Hilden. I'm interested in being a possible bone marrow donor for my brother who has CLL. We are a large family of siblings who may be asked to donate in the months ahead. Several of us are still healthy enough to do this, but we are 66 and older, all of us. What are the risks, if any? Thanks. What a great question, Marla, because uh, bone marrow donation is literally life-saving for so many people. And so I'm going to start right off the bat and just say congratulations for even considering this for your brother and uh, and to tell other listeners to consider becoming a bone marrow donor. And I'm going to even give a plug for BeTheMatch.org. Go to BeTheMatch.org and register as a bone marrow donor. Great I've been on, Yeah, I've been on Be The Match for some 30 years. I haven't been called yet, but if I get called, I will donate, donate my marrow. So BeTheMatch.org. But what about the process itself? I'm not going to lie. It's a little bit uncomfortable, but it's safe. Now, nothing in medicine is 100% safe. I'd be lying if I said that. But it's a it's a relatively low-risk procedure. What they do is they either numb up the area, they, in other words, a regional anesthetic, or sometimes they might do a general anesthetic. And so they make it as comfortable as possible. They generally take um, uh, some of your bone marrow, usually out of your uh, pelvic bones, the big bones of your pelvis, and they numb it up and they aspirate, in other words, withdraw into a, through a needle some of your bone marrow. That process can hurt a little bit. Some people say, wow, that hurt a lot more than I thought. Other people I've actually heard say it didn't hurt as much as I thought, but it is generally not comfortable. But it's just a short period of time, just a few seconds. And 
afterwards, you might have a few side effects. You might have a little pain at the site in your back or your hip area. You might have a little muscle pain. Some people do get a headache from it. And then some people get a little bruising at the site. But those are short-term. Those are short-term side effects. The, the, the long-term complications are indeed very rare. So it's a very, uh, I will say, low-risk procedure. So you do have a little bit of discomfort for a little while. But you are literally uh, providing another chance at life for your loved one. Uh, or if you're on Be the Match and you happen to get paired with someone you don't know, you're giving a, ch- a second chance at life to some uh, person that you don't even know, and uh, you can live the rest of your life knowing you did something wonderful. Does it does it ever grow back, or can you donate more than once? From- yeah, yes, your bone marrow does grow back. So it's a your bone marrow has a, a lot of purposes. Uh, it is the sort of For lack of a better word, it's sort of the gelatinous, red, bloody part that is inside your big bones. And it is where the cells of your blood get created. It seems really weird, and people maybe don't realize that, but your red blood cells, your platelets, your white blood cells, they all get made in your bone marrow. And some of it's in your sternum, some of it's in your long bones, but a good chunk of it's from your pelvis. It's literally these big bones in your body. And so the inside of your bone is not, it's not solid through like a piece of concrete. The inside has got trabeculations or little um, se- you know, segments to it, and, and it looks sort of like a, almost like a honeycomb sort of thing in there. And in that area is this red gooey stuff that, where your cells get made, and that's what they're taking out. So people who have hematologic or blood-borne cancers like leukemia, their bone marrow, the cells in there are going crazy. They're, they're, they're growing out of control. And so when they get a bone marrow transplant, it's a lot harder on the recipient. They have to go through a chemotherapy cycle to literally kill off their bone marrow. Their bone marrow is just not wow. working. It is creating leukemic cells out of control. So they get a chemotherapy to es- essentially wipe out their bone marrow. Then they take a little bit of your bone marrow and they inject it back into that person. And your cells take off, except your cells are normal. So your cells just take off and start growing. The recipient grows back over many, many weeks. They grow back normal blood cells. Your body can easily replace them. So both parties come out um, doing just fine. The recipient uh, um, has a longer road ahead of them. It's, It's generally quite effective, but they have to go through chemotherapy. They lose their hair. They're hospitalized for many weeks on end. And, uh, but it's, a, it's a, an effective treatment uh, um, for many patients, uh, and it's life-saving. And safe for Marla and her family. And uh, it's safe for Marla and her siblings. Yeah, and she's 66 years old. And I don't know the exact age, but that is not old. Uh, um, 66 is not old. I am not aware that that's a problem at all at that age. All right, and uh, we've got time for one more here. This one came in on our phone lines. Hi, this is Amy from Minneapolis, and I'm training for a half marathon. I wonder if it's ever too hot or too humid to run safely. Thanks so much. Great questions, Amy. And coming from, I'm a marathon runner. I've done a bunch of them, 9, 10, something like that. A bunch. Yeah, I have done a lot of them because I had this goal, a little side. I have a goal to run Boston Marathon, and you know you have to qualify by a mm-hmm. time. And and I qualified once, and I still didn't get in because uh, Boston filled up that year. So I loved running marathons, but I've kind of stopped because, wow, it's a lot of work. Holy cow, you have to train for <laughs> okay. five months, and it's like the it's the longest five hours of your life. But, but... That being said, I am still a runner. I love running. Half marathon's a great distance, by the way, Amy. But training, how do you train? First of all, if you're a kind of a weekend warrior and you're not a runner already, uh, running in the heat of the summer and the humidity can actually be quite 
dangerous. So the the key is to go slowly at first. If you're just starting your training, uh, maybe do it if it's really hot outside. If it's in the 90s or the heat index is even in the high 80s, maybe run on the treadmill or run in the evening or run in the morning because the heat is actually quite dangerous. If you're a collegiate Division I runner or you're an elite runner, and you've, you could probably run in almost any heat. So the point being is that it is, it's very dependent on you and your level of health. But for anybody, anybody be very careful in high temperatures. Uh, the things to do, uh, you probably know um, uh, in your head, it's kind of common sense, but it bears repeating. Drink plenty of fluids, non-alcoholic fluids, water, 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 water. Drink a ton of water. Drink it frequently when you're outside in the heat. If you're outside in very hot days and you're perspiring, perspiring's good. That's how your body loses heat. But if you stop perspiring, and it's a very, very hot day, that's a bad sign, a really bad sign. Your body temperature is going to rise quite a bit. It's a sign that the heat's too hot, you've perspired out all your moisture, and you're dehydrated. And then lastly, when it's very hot, get out of the heat. I mean, if, you, if you're getting dizzy, if you're getting woozy, you're a little unsteady on your feet, if you're confused, you need to get out of the heat right away. Those are signs of heat exhaustion or the, the much more severe heat stroke. So I do encourage people to exercise, though, and just take it slow, be safe in the heat, and good luck on that 13.1 miler, Amy. Fantastic. Well, that's all the time we have. These have been great questions. I want to thank our listeners for sending them in. Keep your questions questions coming. Thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode. And in the meantime, be healthy and be well. Thanks for listening to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden. For more information on Healthy Matters or to browse the archive, visit our website at healthymatters.org. The Healthy Matters Podcast is made possible by Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and engineered by John Lucas at Highball. Executive producers are Jonathan Comito and Christine Hill. Please remember, we can only give general medical advice during this program, and every case is unique. We urge you to consult with your personal physician if you have more serious or pressing health concerns. Until next time, be healthy and be well. Be well.